Welcome to Macro Matters with Millennium Global, the podcast where we tackle the major macroeconomic themes driving today's financial markets and what it all means for your portfolio, your asset allocation, and your currency exposure. Millennium Global is a $20 billion currency specialist manager providing risk mitigation and alpha strategies in the currency space to institutional investors globally since 1994. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Macro Matters with Millennium Global. Today, we are going to discuss the recent significant U.S. dollar strength, potential problems it creates for U.S. investors, how we should think about addressing those problems, and the outlook in the medium to long term for the U.S. dollar from here. My name is Abigail Cushing, and I'm joined today by Mark Astley, who is the co-CEO of Millennium Global. Good afternoon, Mark, and uh, thank you for taking a few minutes to speak with me. It's good to be with you. So a major headline last week was the U.S. dollar hitting a new 20-year high, with April marking its largest monthly gain in a decade. And meanwhile, the BOJ's reinforced commitment to its super low yield policy sent the yen falling through the 130 mark for the first time since 2002. The euro is getting ever closer to parity with the U.S. dollar, dropping almost 5% in April, given concerns on Europe's energy sector, inflation, and growth. And sterling hit a 22-month low as well, displaying its worst performance since October 2016 in the post-Brexit turmoil. Now, this is big news, and it has U.S. investors with internationally exposed portfolios rightfully concerned and asking some pressing questions Given these historic divergences, I want to dive into some of these issues with you. Let's look at the U.S. dollar's remarkably strong performance in 2022. What are the driving forces behind this phenomenon? Well, this year, there are principally two, I would say. Uh, The first is um, perhaps obviously the war in Ukraine. Uh, It's the first time since 1945 that we have had a so-called hot war in Europe with very large tank movements, significant uh, troop uh, dispersions, artillery, and so on. And evidently, by virtue of geographic proximity and uh, trade links, it's impacting European economies more than the United States. Uh, It's well known about the links through the energy complex with Germany, Italy, and other major Western European and even Eastern European nations. And so it's impacting the euro, the Swiss franc and and sterling and others, the major currencies in Europe accordingly. But there's something bigger going on. And that is the second factor, which is really the significant adjustment in U.S. monetary policy in reaction to what has been a surprising degree of significant and rapid rise in U.S. inflation to the highest level we've seen since 1982. In fact, as we sit here today, the expected degree of tightening by the Federal Reserve should take us to something like a 3% Fed funds rate by the end of 2022, which is a multi-decennial rise compared to uh, the kind of expectations we've had for many years until now. So clearly the macro backdrop for the US dollar and for currencies in general is, is quite different to anything we've seen in some time. How has this historic US dollar strength impacted U.S. domiciled capital owners, including pension funds, endowments, and foundations, many of whom have meaningful exposure to overseas assets in Europe, Japan, China, and and other emerging markets. 
Well, it's noteworthy that this strength is not just a 2022 phenomenon. In fact, if we go back a bit further, the relatively further out strength began in the beginning of 2021. And in fact, since that date, the US dollar has risen by over 16% versus the euro and by more than 26% versus the Japanese yen. And to your point, that is very impactful for investors with internationally invested portfolios in global markets and economies, be they developed or emerging, and has significant impacts on returns in dollar terms, depending upon the currency strategy that's been adopted. So if we put all that into context, let's look at the returns that have accrued to investors uh, investing in international equity markets by dint of the MSCI World XUS Index. That has returned in unhedged terms a minus 3.1% um, over the last 16 months. Whereas in fully hedged terms, it has garnered over 11%. So about a 14% difference, which of course is highly material in a world where the expected nominal returns from traditional assets and indeed alternative assets are much more modest today than they have been in uh, times of yore because of the challenge of richly valued equity markets and debt markets. So that 14% difference is very significant. And it suggests that there should be an increasing focus on currency risk because it can help or hurt portfolios in a very significant way. It's not just a developed market phenomenon. Uh, the Chinese renminbi actually has fallen 6% in the months of March and April combined because we have a situation where the economy is slowing significantly. The zero COVID policy, which has been adopted, has hurt activity um, substantially. And we now know from the Politburo quotes from even yesterday that they are going to stick with that policy. So the concerns about the need to ease monetary policy in China and therefore the prospect of that currency weakening continue in the future. Interesting. Yeah, those differences are meaningful and hard to ignore. How should we think then about the problem of managing FX risk as distinct from the other risks in a globally invested portfolio? Yes, the way to address this and the way to think about the problem is the following, that when you invest overseas in any asset class, uh, in this case from a US dollar base, whether it be in equity markets, fixed income, or even private markets, you really have two portfolios, not just one. The first portfolio is accessing the asset class with the return on capital that is expected and desired. Uh, and therefore, you're thinking of this portfolio of those assets and local currency terms. And typically, that'll have a risk premium and it'll have a certain expected volatility. But you also have another portfolio, and that is a basket of foreign currencies, which also have, separately, their own volatility and unexpected returns, which is to say there is no risk premium in a currency basket, and therefore it's what's known as uncompensated risk. And in the same way that one would never take on risk without any expectation of return, uh, there's a real need to manage that risk. Otherwise, bad things can happen, the like of which was illustrated in those statistics I mentioned a moment ago, where the differential is about 14% between a hedged and an unhedged approach to that. So it's really thinking about those two portfolios and addressing the consequences of that exposure and that risk that comes from that second currency portfolio. That's an interesting distinction, and, and I think a valid point about uncompensated risk. When managing that risk, then, 
when is the right time to hedge and when is the wrong time? Well, currencies are inherently cyclical. And the reason for that is that they are driven by the interaction of the economic cycle in country A and country B. So in this instance, we're looking at the United States economy versus its trading peers. But there are three things to note. The first is that it doesn't come all out in the wash and therefore cannot be ignored. The second is that the deviations within this cycle are large. And so the impact, as has been illustrated from year to year, can be very significant. And the third is that they're long lasting. And so these impacts can be over not only quarters, but multi-year periods. And therefore it is really worth analyzing these currencies as a consequence. Otherwise, negative uh, ramifications will ensue. So for example, if we take um, some empirical analysis to illustrate this, the last tech boom, which was 1995 to 2002, the dollar soared, return on capital in the United States was very high, certainly expectations were uh, elevated as well. Huge amounts of capital entered the US and the dollar had a very strong run. If we were to compare the returns from hedged MSCI World XUS mandates compared to unhedged, there would be an increase of about 800 basis points per annum over that entire seven year period, which was, was of course very significant in the context of total returns in dollars. However, if we fast forward to what is now known as the Great Moderation, which is the six years from 2002 to 2008, just before the Great Financial Crisis, that was a period of dollar funding. It was a period of macro stability. Um, the dollar was un being unwound from the prior bubble. And in fact, in this period, uh, for those that did unhedge, you had something like a 700 basis point per annum increase in returns compared to those that were hedged. So almost an exact opposite. Those are very material numbers. And so they have to be considered in how to think about managing hedges over that multi-year period. And indeed, if we go further forward to perhaps the last decade, uh, there was a very strong dollar rally from excessively cheap valuation points. And Reuters uh, were quoted in July of 2015 uh, wherein the, they stated that the US pension fund industry lost about a trillion dollars of value in the nine months from July 14 to March 15 because the dollar was very strong and most of the industry was unhedged. So in the same way that asset allocation must evolve over time according to the prevailing economic and financial cycle, the same must be said of currency and currency management. So clearly these US dollar moves can be large and prolonged. What do we expect from here? Obviously, the US dollar has already experienced a serious rise. Is there nowhere to go from here but down, or can this strength be sustained? Well, the $64,000 question today, of course, is the evolution and the progress of the US economy in an environment where we have, for the first time in many, many years, a Fed tightening cycle. And it's very evident that the Fed is behind the curve, given that we have inflation today at the highest level since 1982. But we've done quite a lot of analysis here and, and, and some research, and it would appear apparent that given this state of the tightness of the labor market in particular, and the other ingredients firing inflation ever higher, the probability of the Fed engineering a soft landing is actually very low. So for example, since the mid 1950s, 
there have been a number of periods where inflation has been above 5% as it is today, but employment has been below, been below 5% as it is today. And in not one example or one period of that history has there not been a recession within two years. And the reason being that the degree of monetary tightening required to bring down the demand to slow the economy and tame inflation has inevitably caused a recession. Now, to put that into context, we are at a level of tightness in the job market not seen for something like 70 years. Today, there are 11.5 million job vacancies in the United States. There's only 6 million people unemployed. We haven't had that almost two to one ratio for 70 years. And it's, as I say, since that period, completely unprecedented. Now, we have had some soft landings in the last 60 years of economic history, notably 1994, 1984, 1965. But in each case, there was a much higher level of unemployment and a lower level of wage inflation. And the reason that was helpful to the cause in those periods was that the degree of slack was such that it was possible to tame domestic demand, bring inflation down without leading to a recession. The situation today is not at all akin to that. And therefore, the probability of having a hard landing, regrettably, is quite high with perhaps a recession in 2023 or 2024. Now, that is obviously negative for return on capital in the United States. It's arguably negative for earnings growth uh, and therefore probably negative for the US dollar as well at some point, as and when the Federal Reserve uh, does um, eat into uh, this demand problem. However, there is another um, potential reality, and we have a case study back from the early 1980s when we did indeed have this similar inflation problem. And the Paul Volcker Federal Reserve at the time had an extremely significant and perhaps severe response to the inflation problem and engendered an economy where you had positive real Fed funds rates, where the Fed fund rates went to a level higher than inflation. Now, that would take something like 800 basis points today which would appear to be something unlikely to happen. But, but were the Fed to take a very and excessively aggressive stance, that would be positive to the dollar, as it was in that era, particularly if the White House were to have an expansionary fiscal policy. So all that to say, we're somewhat on a knife edge. We're somewhat in a fork in the road here in what is relatively unprecedented economic situation. And that's why it's very important to have a dynamic approach to currency management, because it's not entirely clear which fork the economy will pursue. Obviously, we're at a very interesting juncture here uh, and one that seems to really compel asset owners to at least take a close look at their currency exposure. Mark, how can institutional investors address the problem? Well, certainly the position of greatest risk is to do nothing or ignore the management of currency risk completely. And I hope that's been illustrated in some of the empirical analysis we've shared in the context of this cyclical characteristic and this very large quantum that has happened over time. And so a dynamic approach would probably be preferable in the context of managing that risk to reduce negative cash flows, to improve the risk reward characteristics of the portfolio, and to adjust hedge ratios um, Upwards, of course, when the dollar, if it does continue to rally, and downwards, if it uh, then turns over and descends. Uh, 
because the outcome of that process will be much more superior to either doing nothing or having a static hedge, which is unchanging. So I think an active or dynamic approach is something very important to consider in um, a currency management approach, rather like the adjustments one might have in an asset allocation context. There's no one asset allocation which is going to be ideal in all economic and financial environments. And exactly the same issue is germane to currency management as well. So would you say, in your opinion, that uh, the greatest risk for an institutional investor when assessing their currency is to ignore it completely? Indeed, absolutely. That is the position of highest risk. And we would encourage people to go and address that, particularly in the given the context in which we've discussed. Yes, that certainly seems to be the case, given the facts and figures you've laid out for us. Thank you, Mark, for taking the time to expand on some of these issues surrounding last week's headlines. Clearly, we are at a pivotal moment for the U.S. dollar and for the evolution of the U.S. economy. For anyone interested in diving further into these and related topics, we would very much welcome a conversation with you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Macro Matters with Millennium Global, and we will see you next time to tackle other key macro issues shaping today's financial markets.